If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Exodus, chapter 7. We'll begin reading in verse 14 here in just one moment. If you don't have a Bible with you in the seat or the pocket of the pew in front of you, you can find a black Bible, and you can find Exodus uh, 7 on page 46 of that Bible. As we have you opening there, I, I want to start by talking to you about organization. I know, I know. Don't get too excited. We're not going to stand up for too long. But uh, I read something this week in thinking about organizing an organization that I thought was funny, so I'm going to share it with you. I found this in a Reader's Digest article that I came across online. This was the opening paragraph of that article. The saying that cleanliness is next to godliness might not be totally accurate. Though society praises decluttering and organizing, the reality of your workspace cleanliness could have a huge subconscious impact on how you think. And if you're a messy person and have a desk to match, you're probably a genius. That is the most beautiful overstatement I've ever heard in my life. Like, that ham, half-eaten ham sandwich that you decided to leave on your desk three days ago is a sign of pure and unadulterated genius. And, and the word probably there is just brilliant. It's not like possibly. It's like you've got a better than 50-50 shot at being a genius because you don't take care of your stuff. Uh, I, just, I just love it. There is this idea, though, that, that messiness creates sort of an imagination and allows people to be more creative or at a... a it keeps them from having to worry about organizing or whatever the case might be. I, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I certainly don't think that you're a genius if your desk is organized. I don't think that you're one if your desk is unorganized. Truth be told, none of you are geniuses. That's what it means to be a genius. You're one in a million, and you guys are probably one in a million in some ways, but likely not that way. So, But we have a God who is incredibly brilliant in all that he does, overly creative in everything. He is the genius of all geniuses, and he is a God who is incredibly organized. He's a God of order, not a God of chaos. The first thing we read about him, other than the fact that he, in his power, created the world, is that he then organizes the world. He puts it in its right place. As the author of Scripture, we would expect that the same thing is present in his work. And so as we come now to these wonders or these signs, or as we commonly call them, the plagues in the book of Exodus, the question becomes, is there a good way to organize them? Is there, is there something that we can glean and learn from organizing them in a certain way? And I, I think that there is. There's actually a number of different ways that scholars have organized these things. If you, if you so chose to, from the 10 that we normally know of, which isn't is what we count up to 10, it's not actually like the Decalogue given to us as 10 commandments. There aren't 10 plagues or 10 wonders here. You could actually add the first to be Aaron's staff turning into a monster and eating the other staffs. And you could tack on the last being the Red Sea, and you would have a nice biblically round number of 12 by which you could order things. You can also order these things, just the 10 of them, in pairs. So the first two deal with water, as we have the blood and the frogs, which we'll talk about today. The next two deal with land, lice and flies. The next two deal with animals, as pestilence comes on the animals and boils come on human beings. The next two deal with air, the hail and the locusts. And finally, in 9 and 10, we have the sky, where the gods live, darkness dwelling in the land and death coming for the people. 
It provides a really nice organization of things from the very pit and the bottom of the world where water is steadily rising from water to land to animal to air to sky up above, showing that God is in power over all things. The best way, I think, to organize these plagues by the way that Scripture speaks of them here is in groups of three. So one through three is one set, four through six is another set, and then seven through nine is the final set. There's a couple of reasons why. As we read through the plagues, we find in the first of these series of three, Moses is going out to Pharaoh in each of them. God sends Moses out to talk to Pharaoh. Moses goes out to talk to Pharaoh. The third of the three is always shorter than the other two. It comes without warning. Moses doesn't talk to Pharaoh about any of that. The third one, whether it's number three or number six or number nine, just happens. There's this sort of cycle that repeats. So this is how we're going to handle these plagues, these miracles within the book of Exodus. So today we're going to talk about the first three and read the first three. While we think that these are grouped according to a kind of idea or there's something being presented in each of these groups of three, we need to remember that there's also presented to us an entire theme over all of them, and that is this simple fact. God is introducing himself to a world that has forgotten who he is. It doesn't matter if it's Moses, who is still in the process of learning who God is, who I think there are hints in this passage itself. God is starting to reveal himself to Moses. Moses is starting to understand who this God is. Pharaoh has claimed, I do not know the Lord and I will not let the people go. God says, I will make you know who I am. The Egyptians will know. The Israelites will know. God is showing who he is through these things. It will become more and more important as we go through them. This is why, I think, there is just not a quick and demoralizing victory. It's why the defeat of the Egyptians is not truly the main point because God doesn't need 10 plagues or 10 wonders to do that. Over in chapter 9, God says this to Pharaoh, By now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth lest you think that he is just the God of pestilence. God says, I have withheld destroying all of you so that I could steadily show myself the God over all creation. So let us read the first three of these miracles, the first three of these plagues this morning and see who our God is. If you would, read with me beginning in chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and all the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. 
and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed in the Lord, after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh. And say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your hands or with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be as you say, be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and from your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, in the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of our God. May he add his blessings to it. First, I want to talk to you about how God is the one who establishes life and death. God establishes life and death. The first of the miracles is indeed something of a plague. 
The making of the Nile into blood would greatly disrupt the lives of all people. Even if God was merciful in giving them clean water that they could dig out from the side of the Nile, nevertheless, it was a horrible thing to understand and to go through. They, they had blood everywhere. All of the water that they had, the water that they had stored in containers, all of it turned to blood. The import of this miracle comes from the fact that the Nile was the source of life for the Egyptians. As everyone who ever begins studying about Egypt knows, when they look at the map, they say, this land that becomes one of the greatest countries in the known world is smack dab in the middle of a desert. How does a land become great there? The answer is always given. The Nile flows to the Mediterranean, and it overflows its banks regularly, yearly, And that overflowing of its banks provides good soil for the land of Egypt, good irrigation for the land of Egypt, that they might grow crops and have life. It was, in a sense, a stream of life for them. God is in control of that life. And in this case, he demonstrates it by turning the very source of that life into death. The Egyptians believed that the Nile was their life. God turned it into a source of death. Indeed, God had made the Nile to be life for them. That's why the Nile was placed there. But they did not understand that it was Yahweh, the Lord, the Israelites' God, who stood behind the Nile. He was the true source of life, even if he used the instrument of the Nile to provide it to them. The Nile was a source of life, but not because of their river gods, not because of the nat- natural way in which it flew from the mount- or flowed from the mountains of southern Africa all the way up to the Mediterranean. It was because God simply said that it would be that way. If God wants to bring about death, he can strike at the very source of life. So God turned this river of water into blood. Very important that he does that. Again, the symbolism that is involved in these plagues is important. God could have just as easily just killed everything in the river. He could have just looked at it and said, everything that lives and walks in the river is just going to die and, and produced something of the same effect. But he doesn't. He changes it to blood. Blood incredibly symbolically important in the Bible, both as a symbol of life and of death. Blood is life It flows through the beings that God has made and the animals that God has given. It is their lifeblood. Their life is in the blood, the Bible says. But when it is spilled on the ground, it is a symbol of death. And the river flows and runs with blood. Blood everywhere. The second miracle actually speaks to the exact same reality in a completely and utterly different way. The frogs are, it's kind of a weird plague, right? Let's be honest. It doesn't seem like it's, that bad. So if they they watch the first plague, God has turned water into blood, which is a very kind of violent thing to do, a very kind of bravado thing to do. It's it's water, and now it's it's the very substance of life. It, It speaks to death, and death is coming out of it. I am the God of life and death, and fairly large annoyances is what you get when you come to frogs, right? It just doesn't seem like it fits. And there's a lot of the miracles that are going to happen that just don't seem like they fit like that. But this turning of the frogs, bringing the frogs up out of the river is indeed important. They are annoying and they will become incredibly more annoying as they multiply. When I first started preaching through the book of Exodus, we had just had rain 
uh, either the day before or uh, a lot of rain that week. And when my son left church that morning out, out the side door, uh, there were hundreds of little frogs scampering around out there, um, which was ominous. I'll be honest with you. I'm not a superstitious guy. I am a little stitious, but uh, uh, I, it was ominous because, you know, when you're preaching through, it's just like if hail had fallen that day, I, I also would have thought maybe, maybe we should just move on to Judges or something like that. Uh, that book is worse, so if something's going to happen, maybe this is better, but... Um, they, they would be annoying. If you weren't watching where you were walking, you're going to step on them. That's going to get in your car. It's going to stink. It's annoying. So it, it is annoying, but there was much more to the symbolism of bringing frogs into the people of Egypt. Frogs, generally by the ancient Near Eastern people, were considered bad omens, and symbols of demons or something like that. But to the Egyptians, they were symbols of fertility, and they were, in one sense, divine. When the river overflowed, it produced marshes, which were hotbeds for frogs to multiply. And frogs also have this weird way of being both in the water and living in the water and then living on land. It's almost like they spontaneously and miraculously come to being and that they are somehow divine in themselves. And so the Egyptians looked at that spontaneity that happens every year with the giving of life by the river, and they thought this is what the god of fertility must be. So Heket, who is the name of the god of fertility for them, had the body of a woman and the head of a frog, uh, which is probably just as beautiful as you're imagining it to be. Because of that, there are many sources that, that say that it was against the law to kill frogs. And what's worse, that killing of frogs, whether intentionally or accidentally, would likely imply that you are now going to be under a curse from the God of fertility. Why did God pick frogs? For that very reason. Aaron reaches his staff over the exact same designation of that which had just turned to blood and died. In 719, we read that he stretches his staff out over rivers and canals and ponds, he is to do the exact same thing with the frogs in 8.5. He says, stretch out your hand with your staff over rivers and canals and over the pools and make frogs come out of them. That which was dead, that which could not support life, that which would not make any life, everything in that river died. And so when you read that all the fish died, you shouldn't think just in the way of your thinking of fish. Everything that lived in that water, it's kind of a general term for everything that lived in the water died. And then what does God do? Immediately, he brings life and life abundantly out of it. He's saying, you think that frogs are a sign of fertility. You've not seen anything like what I'm about to do. Your God of fertility pales in comparison to this. I make life, and I can bring life from that which is dead. The source of life had died. The picture of life had died. And yet God brings life out of that which is dead. Egypt thinks that their gods control the fate of the living and the dead, and that their practices would secure favor and give them control. And God, in two swift moves, dismantles that by saying, I will make anything that you consider life dead, and I can make anything that you consider dead alive. Jesus, of course, does exactly this. The very first miracle that is recorded of Jesus who John says is, is unlike Moses because he is not bringing condemnation in John 3, but he is bringing 
forgiveness. He is bringing eternal life. So the very first miracle that he does is not turn water into blood, but turn water into wine to celebrate eternal life. Because Jesus is the one who brings what is good from what is evil. Jesus is the one who brings what is alive from what is dead. Jesus is the one who looks at us and speaks life into our lives by dying on our behalf. You were dead, Paul says, in your trespasses and sins. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with him. As Jesus is raised from the grave, so we are raised from the grave. He brings life to that which is dead, and he takes life from that which thinks it is alive. God establishes life and death. Secondly, God executes justice and judgment. Not only do these miracles imply that God is the source of life and death, but he is also the one who brings justice to the nations because the Nile was not just a source of life. The Nile was also the source of judgment for the Israelite people. It is the very body of water that the people of Egypt were told, you are to go and you are to take every male that is born and you are to dunk them in that water until they die. If you are a good reader of scripture, you'll know that many of God's judgments are ironic. They're meant to be that way. He gives people what they ask for, and in that they they get more than they bargained for. So God takes the very thing that the Egyptians believe can give them life, and the very thing that they believe will give death to their enemies and brings death through it to them. It is a portent of what will happen in the future. It is an evil omen, I think, when you read through it, that there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt. It starts, even these plagues start with a figure of blood flowing through Egypt, and it will end with dead bodies strewn everywhere. God will visit people for what they have done. No one escapes God's justice. It might seem like it is taking its time. It might seem like it is is strolling along at a leisurely pace, but God's judgment does indeed arrive. And frankly, the same thing is true with the frogs. In both of these cases, the fish dying stink, and the frogs dying stink. Both, I think, are references back to the people of God, who the foreman of the Israelites said, you have caused us to stink before the Egyptians. The frogs do seem like a nuisance, but they're worse than that. Because the Egyptians weren't allowed to kill frogs, their very idolatry makes the judgment of the frogs worse. Every misstep, every accidental death of a frog means that you might be cursed. Their idolatry makes it so much worse. The frogs are said to swarm. It is the very thing that the people of God were said to do back in chapter 1, verse 7. So much did they multiply that they swarmed over the land of Egypt. The Egyptians loved frogs. They thought that they brought life and goodness. The people of God were to be despised and killed. So God gives the people of Egypt exactly what they want. You don't like the people of Israel swarming over the land, but you love frogs, so I tell you what I will do. I will give you frogs swarming over the land. Not the people of Israel, who even when not enslaved bring good labor and help and aid to your country but your precious frogs, which will bring only trial and pain. 
Both will swarm over the land. One, the Egyptians will look at as something to be used and something to be killed. The other, they will look at as something of a blessing. But that very blessing of fertility will turn into a curse as God multiplies them and multiplies them and multiplies them to a place where they are just more than annoying. While the people are to be kept in the land, Moses goes, or Pharaoh goes to Moses and pleads not to send the people away, but to send the frogs away. It is a judgment that God sends on them. The picture of blessing is going to be taken away from them. God's judgment over them is filled with this sort of delicious irony. He gives to the people of Egypt what they want and what they loved. It reminds me of a famous, if not misunderstood, quote from C.S. Lewis, who writes, I willingly believed, believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Not that they're not also locked on the outside and that God's wrath is not over them, but they don't want to leave. Continuing the quote, they enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved, just as the blessed, forever submitting to obedience, become through all eternity more and more free. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help, but he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. Sinners run from the Lord. They run from his goodness, they run from his kindness, they run from his mercy, they run to their sin, and God will eventually give them what they want. He will remove his blessed presence from them. The Egyptians want frogs. They love frogs. They want the, the enslavement of the people of God. And God is going to overturn everything that they're asking for and show that it is a worthless, worthless thing. God shows the futility of these Egyptian gods to have any sort of power at all. And the Egyptian beliefs and practices are no safeguard against him. The Egyptians are all judged and shown to be wanting. Their bloodlust is returned on their heads. Their gods of fertility are turned on them as well. Their devaluing of human life is turned on them. Their assumption that the Nile is the source of life is turned on them. Even the power of their magicians will be turned on them. Again, Jesus is the prime example of this sort of ironic work of God. The serpent is always working against the people of God, and especially against the servant of God, always seeking to destroy the people, and thus he sought to destroy Jesus. So he enters into Judas. Judas turns on his friend, handing him over to his enemies, who hand him over to the power of the world. And Satan gets exactly what he wants. The servant is killed. The power of the world seems to rule over him, but by giving in to that power, he gives the people of God the very thing they need. He gives them life. Satan is caught in his own trap. The death of Christ brings about life for the people of God, and their death frees them from the power of sin that they may walk, as we've even said so many times this morning, in the newness of life. In his bloodthirst, 
In his desire to rule the world and his lust and his anger, Satan's own plan and the sin of the Jewish leadership is turned on them. It seals their fate in judgment because God executes justice and judgment. Third, God eclipses magic and magicians. Up to this point, we haven't actually talked about the third of the plagues in this set of three. Most commonly, it's referred to as the plague of gnats. In Jewish understanding, it's almost always the plague of the lice, um, probably like lice and ticks and things like that. Uh, the gnats thing is probably a mistranslation. Uh, one of the things that makes us, makes me at least, think this is that the gnats, which typically fly around, if you've ever been around gnats and all of you have been, they fly around, they don't land on you unless you kind of walk into them. Um, they always go directly into your eye. I don't know exactly why that is. Uh, but gnats but are annoying like that, but they're always flying. But here, these things, whatever they are, are clearly not flying around. One of the reasons why we consider this to be sort of a plague from the earth is that not only do these things come from the earth, but they only stay on animals and on people. I think lice works better, but regardless of whether it's lice or whether it is gnats, there is no getting around what happens to the magicians. Why does God even allow the magicians to do the work that they did anyway? It's a pretty odd thing, honestly. It's kind of jarring when you actually read it because what we're prone to think is that, well, they, they were just people. God has power over them. Why are they able to make their staffs into serpents? Why are they able to make blood out of water? Why are they able to allow the frogs to come up out of the river? Doesn't this show that they have this power as well? And I, I think that the answer is pretty straightforward. God loves showing the limits of human power, and he allows people to be smug and arrogant in their own power, teases them out a little bit, only to show that they eventually are not nearly as powerful as they seem to be. The power of the magicians to do this is something that God uses to push on Pharaoh in the very beginning of this. In eight, or at 7.22, we read, The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. This is the, the point of what we have is that God is allowing the magicians to do this so that Pharaoh would continually be hardened in his heart. And you shouldn't think for a second that they do this by some sort of sleight of hand. They're not not magicians like David Copperfield who can't actually move the Statue of Liberty around, but it really does appear like he does. There's every intention of reading this. If you think that the plagues of God are real and true, that what the magicians do here is actually real and true. What it does is it makes Pharaoh arrogant, makes him smug, and it makes him incredibly foolish. Eventually, their power does run out. And it's important to see from this passage what Pharaoh just doesn't seem to see. He takes comfort in the fact that they can do these miracles, but the miracles aren't actually what they need. They don't need more blood in Egypt, and they certainly don't need more frogs in Egypt. For some reason, this this pacifies Pharaoh, but they are doing nothing to actually help the situation. What they need to do is be able to change blood into water. What they actually need to do is to make frogs disappear. Maybe David Copperfield could help them, but they can't. You'll notice who Pharaoh runs to when he asks for the frogs to be taken away. He doesn't go to his magicians. 
He goes to Moses. Moses responds. It's hard to tell exactly what Moses meant by this. I happen to be a fairly snarky and sarcastic guy, so when I hear it, I think that Moses is actually doing that. I think this is one of those turning points in Moses' life. He's been been hesitant. He's been reluctant. He's, He's gone faithfully to do what he's doing, but I think now he's starting to buy in. So he says, Be pleased to command me. Be pleased to command me. When I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people. He says, you can come and you can talk to me. I know your magicians can't do it. So you can come and ask me. And the whole purpose behind saying this to him is say, I know that you have to ask me because they can't do it. They can't take him away, but my God can. So you come and you ask me. And the moment that you want it, you want it now, you want it two days from now, you want it tomorrow, you just tell me when you want it. And my God, in a moment, will take him away. So that you might know that the Lord is God. These magicians can ape the power of God. They can mimic it to a point. But there's always a limit to that. Their power is always finite. This is something that Satan is really good at. In Revelation, the enemy of the people of God shows up doing wonders and miracles and powers. It is something of a three-headed beast made up of a dragon, the beast that persecutes and the false prophet. It is a fake triune God, not truly the goodness of God to be found in it, but it looks good and it sounds good to the people of the world. And by his trade, he seals people for destruction. But the people of God are not fooled. The people of God see through the mask. The people of God see the truth of the real triune God, for they have been sealed by God himself that they might never be pulled away. They see in Jesus the very finger of God, as it were. These magicians finally in the end look at this and they say, this isn't just magic that Aaron is doing. This is the very power of God you see displayed in front of you, Pharaoh. It is a cry out to Pharaoh to understand what he's getting into. And later, they're going to plead with him and say, I don't know why you're putting up with this Moses. Send him away. The magicians will get it. They see the very finger of God here. Jesus uses that exact same language in the book of Luke. He says, if you see that demons are being cast out, then you are seeing the very finger of God at work. I'm not a magician. I'm not fooling you. If what you see before you is true, then you need to know that God is working through me. His work is, is so powerful over evil, so victorious over it, that all should be able to see in it the very finger of God. And so those who believe in him do. These miracles, these wonders, and these plagues that God visits on the Egyptians are here to do one thing, to tell the world who this God is. So let all know and understand there is one God in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There is one God who is the God of the Hebrews who spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who will deliver his people. There is none like him. He is glorious above all the other gods. He is victorious for his people, and he is the destroyer and the judge of those who stand as his enemies. And there is no place that we see this more powerfully or more mercifully than in Jesus himself. These plagues are wonderful visual demonstrations of the power of God, but they are just hints. 
Nothing more than shadows of the greater power of the cross of Jesus. Where the dead are truly raised, where the enemy is truly overcome, where the power of God is seen visibly and every life transformed and every soul redeemed, everyone who is made whole in the blood of the Lamb. May we praise the God of such miracles through his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we read of your power and your might in this text, and we have witnessed it in the lives of those who were baptized this morning. Even more, we remember it in our own lives, for we were sinners, but we have been saved by grace. For those who have truly heard and seen your gospel this morning, may their praises rise to your throne, and may your mighty works compel their obedience and faith. For those who have ears, but have not heard, eyes, and have not seen, We ask for your mercy. Let not the ruler of this world blind them anymore, but give them freedom to know you through the work of Jesus our Lord. For we pray these things in his name, for our good and for his glory. Amen.